This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Hi, I'm Megan Gilmore, and I'm super excited to welcome you to the first episode of Connecting Disability on AMI Audio. As someone with a visual impairment and a journalist, I know that disability can raise a lot of questions. But I don't think these questions always have to be a bad thing. Instead, I think they represent one of the greatest benefits of having a disability. The chance to connect with diverse people, often in very vulnerable, beautiful moments of their lives. That's what this podcast is all about. Every month, we talk to someone about how their experiences with disability have helped them connect deeper with themselves, others, or the world around them. And on this episode, I'm thrilled to introduce you to the journalist who first showed me how to write good stories about disability. Ian Brown is a career journalist. He is a staff feature writer with The Globe and Mail in Toronto, and his journalism and his books have won numerous awards. But most important to this conversation today, he is married to the writer Johanna Schneller, and together they have two young adult children, their daughter Haley and their son Walker. In 2009, Ian wrote a much-anticipated memoir, The Boy in the Moon, A Father's Search for His Disabled Son, about Walker's childhood and the events leading up to Walker eventually moving to a group home when he was still a kid. The book won a bunch of awards, was adapted into a play, sparked some controversy, and showed a then-journalism student that it was possible to write meaningful work about disability that was inspired by but not confined to personal experience. In many ways, you could argue that this podcast exists because I read Ian's work. Ian was kind enough to join us um, from a hotel room in New York where he was waiting out a hurricane. We talk about how writing about disability um, helps us connect and understand it and what Walker is still teaching his dad today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ian Brown. Ian Brown, welcome to the program. Hi, pleasure to be here. You are the first one, so thank you for taking that risk. And this is a day of many firsts for me, not just because you're the first person I've done for this podcast, but this is probably the first interview I've done with somebody who we have both admitted to making the other person cry. So uh, when I was preparing for this, I came with water and Kleenex and... I guess to give the audience the background for that, back in 2009, you published a book, a memoir called The Boy in the Moon, a Father's Search for His Disabled Son. And I read that as a 22-year-old journalism student who was preparing to do a capstone project on the experiences of parents as they were thinking about their children's future, uh, children who wouldn't be able to live independently because of disabilities, and what that would mean for them and their families. And I was also trying to hide the fact that I was about to enter adulthood as as someone with a physical disability. And that book showed me that I had parents and, and my parents had a life and they had relationships. And I remember bawling. And so I decided to email you and let you know that uh, you simultaneously made me curl up in the fetal position and cry and also inspire a career in journalism. So there you go. 
I hope uh, both of those things work out. The fetal (laughs) position I fully understand and recommend at times, but the career in journalism these days, you know, don't blame me. Right, right. It's true. I don't anymore. (laughs) But how does that make you feel like over a decade later that you get emails from perfect strangers saying, hey, this book you wrote way like 2009 is like a whole other era, it feels. Um, And it's still having this impact for people and people have gone on and done things with their lives as a result of an experience reading that. How does this feel with all this time that's lapsed? Well, it's, you know, uh, huge um, and, uh, you know, moving um, honor to be, to be frank. I mean, I, I mean, it's obviously very flattering, I guess, at one level and, um, and it's a great privilege and um, pleasure to have been involved in, you know, to even have had a, a part uh, in the lives of others. But I have to say that, it, and I mean this sincerely and without, I'm not trying to be uh, falsely modest here, but I increasingly, I, I don't think of it as really anything I did. All I tried to do was uh, bring a little bit of what I know how to do, which is report things and write about them, you know, look at them carefully and without having a panic attack and then and then putting them down on the page with any luck. Um, but but I, I the reason why I say I don't know what, how much I had to do with it is because, uh, you know, having my son Walker allowed me to join this community um, of of people. Uh, not just people with disabilities, but, uh, you know, parents of people with the, the, the whole world uh, that surrounds disability, not just as a, as a subject, not just as an occasional affliction, but as a way of seeing the world and of understanding the world and of feeling the world. And it sent me into this place of grace and connection. And after that happened, I mean, uh, it, it was kind of out of my hands. And it, I think it's a testament to that community and its its realness, its concreteness, that I really don't, I don't take the responsibility or the praise or, you know, the blame, I guess, for that book so much as I really did become its vessel. I often hear, you know, novelists, when they get interviewed, people say, uh, oh, you know, how did you, how did you write this book? And the novelist, you know, will say, I don't know how I wrote it. You know, it wrote me, it came with me. And I, every time I hear that, I think, oh, you know, that's such garbage. It's all technique and, and you know, application, I'm, you know, scenes, dialogue, point of view, details. The, the, those are the building blocks of a story and that's how you do it. But I must say that in the world of disability, there's something going on there, that these people who have trouble communicating in one way or another, you know, whether it's physically or intellectually or verbally, they figured out this other way of communicating. And that was the, the medium through which it happened. Hence my, my uh, you know, very pleasurable bewilderment. Mm-hmm. Pleasurable bewilderment. I feel like that is probably a phrase that describes a lot of what it is to live with a disability, that there's both this, this pleasure, like we're still experiencing joy of life. But there's also this bewilderment in the sense of the joy didn't come the way it typically seems to come, or it comes in very surprising, surprising ways. Yes, uh, you know one of the things that uh, the dilemmas I faced when I wrote this book, and there were there were many, but was this sense that nobody ever really describes how difficult, even you know, a, a mild. A disability can be to live through, obviously, and to live with even. 
But at the same time, nobody ever describes how completely exhilarating the moments of grace it provides can be as well, because it changes your perspective. Mm -hmm. It shifts your sense of what's possible and what's good and what there is to be grateful for, I suppose. Right. And for, for many people, uh, one of the things that disability has produced is, is your book. And it's been a theme that you've returned to in your career since then, um, as recent as, as this pandemic. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But I'm just wondering if you could just take us back into a time machine, because The Boy in the Moon has a very particular and interesting publication history of how it became the book that it became. So when you were going through that transition from we're going to take some columns that The Globe had published a few years earlier, and we're going to make this into a book, like how did you originally feel about devoting an entire book to the topic of your family's experience with Walker and his disability? Because I, I remember when that book came out and there was hype and there were people who were waiting with bated breath for this book. So there was a, a waiting audience for it. But for you, how did it feel to now be giving what had been a very personal experience a full book-length treatment? Uh, terrifying, uh, completely t terrifying. And even publishing the excerpts, there were three excerpts, three very long excerpts in the Globe and Mail. Um, that that accounted for maybe a quarter of the book in the end, uh, or that you know made up about about that long length of uh, material. Even then, it took me years and years and years to write about it. I had been keeping notes. I would be compelled to go towards my typewriter and type out, you know, the routine of of getting up in the middle of the night to look after Walker, or you know, the names of all yeah. the assistive toys that the Ministry of uh, social services sent us, you know, toys that were, I, I could never figure out. I could never figure out what the hell was supposed to happen to what, when, where. So, uh, you know, Walker's chances were even, I suppose, less, less than, but he used them in a different way. Anyway, I, I didn't write about it for many, many years. And finally, my editor at the Globe and Mail, Catherine Bradbury said, why don't you write about it? And she knew she's Walker's godmother. And, um, she said, why don't you write about this? It's a, you know, you speak about it in such an engaged way. So I tried that. Uh, my problem was that, you know, it, it's Walker's story, A, not my story it, to some degree. Uh, I didn't want to presume anything. I didn't want mm -hmm. to be seen to be playing for pity because that was something I did not want to do. I did not want to use Walker in any way as a, as a vehicle to, you know, accomplishment or fame or money or anything like that. I, I didn't want to do any of that. Um, but I still felt compelled to write about it. And, and the writing really was, I had to write it because I had to figure out what I thought because I couldn't figure out what I thought because Walker, you know, uh, you know, and it was born with cardiofacio syndrome um, it's a very, very rare affliction. Nobody knows it. The range of, of features, you know, goes from very serious, uh, profound disability to, to nothing, nothing noticeable. Um, you know, it, he, he couldn't speak. He, he couldn't, you know, he cried a lot. We, we couldn't communicate in any way. We couldn't tell what was wrong. A lot seemed to be wrong. And in addition to all the logistics of trying to figure out you know, how to keep him alive. There was this bigger question, for me at least, which was, what is his purpose? Is it value? I know that sounds harsh and, and unsentimental, but, you know, when you're in the trenches, 
it's it's live or die, you know. And you you've got to you got to rewrite. You got to make those decisions. And 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 while so much of him was so difficult, there were these times when I suddenly it, it, he felt so important, and I couldn't understand why he was important, but I knew. I, I could feel that he was important. And so I set out to figure out why he felt important and what his value was, not just to me, but, but you know, to the world. Because if he had value to the world, then maybe I could convince the world to take care of him after I'm gone, right? That, that, to justify that, that investment. I mean, I go out there and I bang away at the Globe and Mail and I pretend that that's, that's a contribution to society. You know, I mean, they pay me, but you know, one pretends that, but he doesn't have the advantage of living within a cliche, you know, the way I do. And he couldn't articulate it himself, but I felt he somehow was articulating it to me. And so I thought I'd pass it along. And that was a daunting. And plus, you know, most writing about disability, I mean, until you came along, you know, and a couple of others, most writing about disability is absolutely awful. It's terrible. It's it's self indulgent. It's it's you know it, 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 it every time something difficult comes up, the, the author says, "Oh, but they're angels," you know, and, and then everybody floats away on some false foamy cloud of of delusion, you know. And I didn't want to write a book like that, right? So, so I had to see if there was if I had something else to write about. You put a lot in that answer. There's so many things I want to parse apart. But one of them is, and you knew this when the book was coming out, you knew that there would be some people who did not appreciate it, uh, did not like it. Uh, one of the words that comes up a lot when I think about this book, when I talk to other writers about this book, is it's a visceral book. You feel it in your gut as you're reading this. It is um, incredibly vivid descriptions of what are mundane and very crucial details and you feel like every part of your body is engaged as you do this and it also meant that some people had very strong reactions against the book uh particularly that question of what is the value of walker's life some people would argue that we shouldn't they, even asking that question is implying that his life has less value because he has a harder time communicating verbally or has a cognitive disability. And I, and you watched this reaction. I watched this reaction happen in, in real time on parent support groups back in the day. So how do you engage with that? Like, how did you engage with that reaction then? And then now, how do you, how do you balance that? Well, I fully understand the reaction. I, you know, I, I completely understand it. I would also maintain that I didn't have any choice. I think Samuel Beckett, you know, the playwright was and writer was right mm -hmm. that life consists of a blink of light, a very, very short blink of light between the darkness before you were born and the darkness after you die. But that every passage, every tunnel through that, every little stream of light through that, that, that makes up a life is, is unique, as we know. And you have to keep that channel open for, for the uniqueness of that voice to emerge. And Walker's was not visible enough. And he felt important to me. He felt like he had something to say to the world. And I had to uh, translate it. 
that's all from the from the language he uses mm. which is mostly physical and you know clicking and, and mood oriented and i had to translate it into a language that other people w- might be able to uh, take in and so i wasn't trying to appropriate anything i wasn't trying to you know expropriate anything i wasn't trying to um, I mean, and it's all very well to say, well, you know, I was implying that his life has no has no value. I wasn't implying that his life has no value. I never actually implied that. So anybody who thinks that, you know, misread the book. But it's it's delusional to think as a parent that anybody who cares for uh, another human being does not play off the question of is this worth it and what am i doing and how can i make it more worth it what will the benefits of this be and how can i keep those benefits going i mean i live in a province in ontario where the support for people with intellectual disabilities goes up and down like a you know nine-year-old yo-yo and and it goes up and down for reasons that nobody seems to be able to comprehend mostly the mood of the finance minister or some political calculation that they're making that is no basis on, upon which anybody's life should be should be based, and so one needs to. I understand everybody has value, and what is one doing questioning it? Don't you understand what we have here? We have a new portal, a new way of looking into the value of human being. That's what we have, and I'm not trying to turn Walker into you know Gandhi or anything like that. That's not that's that's not it, but. He is a voice, and he's a voice that very, very, very rarely gets connected to or uh, opened up, as valuable as it is. And and I can say that from you know personal experience and seeing how other people connect to to that story. And one of the things that I would say makes your book stand apart from other memoirs because as you know there are many disability memoirs and I feel like they are growing but your book was one of your book was an earlier one what I found as a journalism student now and as a a journalist um as journalism student then as a journalist now what I found made your book unique is it was not just about you and your family that you deliberately set out to find other families whose children have CFC as well you traveled internationally in some parts to hear the perspectives of other people who deal with disability in different ways. And that continues today. So even the May 2020 piece that you did for the Globe and Mail about a life in lockdown during a pandemic at the beginning of COVID-19, when you were describing how you and your wife were separated from Walker because you couldn't go visit him, all the other people who are part of Walker's life when you and Johanna aren't with him. So I'm just curious for you, why has it been so important to consistently tell your family's story with other people's stories as well? Why is this a community endeavor? Um, Is that just the journalist reporting instinct or why involve other people in this? I think it's an attempt to broaden the evidence base, you know, to say it's not just me. It's not just us. It's not just our our siloed little family. It's not just, you know, that there are other people like this. I think what's interesting is the way, what the times when I actually do feel somewhat gratified, I don't, you know, trust much praise um, or blame, um, but the times I do feel gratified is when somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I read your book 
And it was great. I really enjoyed it. I, it made me, you know, laugh and cry and think, et cetera. And I say, oh, great. Do you, do you have a, a disabled child? And they say, no. No, no, I have five, you know, totally normal kids, all of whom are going to Yale, you know, or graduating as lawyers or something like that. And I think that's exactly what I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to show that for all its intricacies and, and knots and, and blocks, Walker's, the dilemma of Walker, of raising him and living with him, of, of trying to help him live his life, uh, is no different than any in my case, father, you know, with his own teenaged kid. I mean, when you think about how little we actually know about our even normal children and how little our even normal children actually tell us about what is actually going on in their minds. I mean, you think back to when you were a kid and all the incredible secrets you kept from your parents, you know, not just, you know, I smoked a cigarette, I did this, or but I'm terrified of this, or what the hell does that mean? Or, you know, why were you wearing that? You looked so weird. I mean, all those, you know what it's like, that incredible internal life. Nobody knows anything about anybody. But with Walker, I can... I'm allowed to say, hey, nobody knows anything about anybody. What, what, do you, what do you think he's saying? What is he trying to tell me here? And, and we can speculate together. So when somebody, the parent of, of so-called normal children, comes up and says, boy, you know, your, your book really spoke to me. I think that's great because, you know, we're exactly the same. It's just a question of variation. It, the, the fundamental issues are the same. How do we tell each other? what we feel, what we know, what we love, what we're afraid of. So that confusion, that desire to connect with each other, but that inability to know each other fully or to connect in the way that we would like, that comes up again in the piece you did last year, Two Meters and A World Apart, Life in Lockdown for Me and My Disabled Son, where you mentioned how, uh, well, direct quote from you, quarantine makes us want to connect but then tells us we can't touch. It used to be Walker who could communicate in only limited ways. The pandemic has made us all like him, grasping for something just outside our reach. So first, what has the pandemic been like for you and your family in terms of how you're communicating with Walker and he's communicating with you? But then what has it also taught you about disability and where would you like us to go from here? Well, it's been very difficult. We've seen Walker three times, or we had seen him three times in a year. And if we went outside, we could go up and we could be six feet from him. But, you know, he's a boy who's used to, you know, physical contact. And so it made me feel terrible to see him and not be able to go up and hug him. And it made my wife crush her even more. So I presume it's pretty hard for walkie too, you know, I mean, he has, he hasn't, he doesn't speak, so he doesn't say that, but I could tell from his, his, his body language, you know, he, he kept coming towards us, kept coming towards. And then finally we said, no, I said, you know, you have to, you have to stay away because I don't want you to get sick. You have to stay healthy. And somehow, I guess because he's good at learning routines uh, or used to learning routines, he figured that out. And, and then I saw him sit down and accept this six foot space. I think what the pandemic did was that it reduced everybody. It gave us all, if you will pardon my misuse of the word, it disabled us all. 
to some degree. You know, we could not, we, at least it, it forced us to realize that the, the way we thought we were connecting wasn't actually working. And it, it took away, you know, true connection, but it also took away many false connections, many ways of pretending that we were in charge, that we, we, we could control our own lives. And that, that to me is one of the greatest values that living with uh, someone with a disability like Walker has, has shown me. And, and that is that none of us have any control over what happens to us. It would be helpful to live that way, you know, to treat, for instance, you know, the planet that way. That would be a good start, right? Um, to deal with some of the stuff that's happening, happening in Afghanistan or in the Middle East. Uh, to start from a position of fragility to say, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. And it looks like you don't either. And none of us know how to control this. Why don't we help each other out? Instead of saying, you know, I'm the smart one, you're an idiot, which is the way we we go about it now. Walker sh showed me that fragility is a very strong place to begin from. And and I think the pandemic, parts of the pandemic, if, if, if we're smart enough to remember the pandemic and take from it what it might, some of the things it taught us properly, we, we might, we, that might be the thing it taught us that A, fragility is where we all start from and B, that it's possibly a very good thing. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And then, uh, so this podcast is called Connecting Disability, kind of um, the idea, well, you would appreciate this. We always say writing is a solitary act, but nobody writes alone because there's so many people that come into that finished work, even though their names may not be on it. And disability is in some ways very similar in the fact that it is incredibly solitary at times. It exists in medical sense. It exists in one person's body and very specific parts of their body or their brain, but nobody does their disability alone. There's so many people who influence it and help us understand it. So this tension always between the isolation and the connection. And I was just wondering for you, uh, like right now, um, besides being in a hotel room in New York, waiting on a hurricane, what are some of the most isolating parts of disability right now for you? And then what helps you connect to others? And how would you want others to connect to you? I think the most isolating part for me, and this is individual, but is Walker not speaking? You know, I'm a talker and I'm a, especially a listener. And I love to hear the story come from, you know, the subject. And, and I, I miss that, you know, Johanna and Haley, especially I did too, but they especially used to have dreams about Walker in which he was talking like a, like a trial lawyer, you know, he's like incredibly articulate, you know, like Clarence Darrow sort of, you know, holding forth. And I, I used to have dreams about him sort of standing on the steps of his house with not one but two girlfriends. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know why he was a polygamist, but and he was so happy. And he was saying goodbye to me and saying to me to take care, Dad, you know, that and he was so he was free. Right? He was he was free enough to say to me, you take care. You look out, you know. He wanted to return whatever mild favor I had done him, I guess. I don't know. So that, that silence, that unspeakingness to me remains 
one of the most prominent questions and metaphors and uh, subjects that I'm always interested in uh, is is speechlessness in in all its forms and how how we get around that because you know again as the pandemic has shown us but as as disability has been teaching us whether we wanted to learn the lesson or not you know since time immemorial you know since neanderthal man apparently cared for his disabled pals you know his bros um according to the evidence yesterday i had a couple of hours off in the morning and i went across the street from my hotel into the museum of modern art i was walking around looking at some abstract expressionist paintings and one of the artists whose paintings i was looking at said it's impossible for human beings to ever understand one another that's what painting is that's what art is it's an attempt to point out that we, we never understand one another it's an attempt to create an understanding that's what art is you know that's what we we face every day and i think disability is it is another path to recognizing one another and that's the most it's the most profound it's the most moving it's the most important it's the most hopeless <laughs> it's the most universal task we have before us but but why not use the example of people who are really really good at it people who have disabilities who who somehow figure out I and mean, i can say oh well you know i was i became very good at listening to walker's clicks and figuring out what they mean but it's not it, it was not a one way thing he was involved and he showed me and if he can show me people with less severe disabilities can you know and again i'm not trying to say somebody has some moral or ethical or you know responsibility to be gandhi or to be you know to be jesus or something like that. that's not my point we we all have to make the effort but the effort is there to be made if you're not afraid of it if instead of you know seeing someone with a disability and saying eek you know a mouse and running away or jumping on the chair which is what we normally do instead mm -hmm. we said oh interesting well um Ian Brown thank you so much for your time today i i really appreciate it and say hi to walker for us and thanks for uh, letting your family uh tell your story to everyone. Well, thank you. Well, isn't it great when writers are as profound in conversation as they are on the page? You can follow Ian Brown on Twitter at Brown of the Globe. You can also head over to his Globe and Mail author page, theglobeandmail.com slash authors slash Ian hyphen Brown. That's Ian spelled I-A-N. Connecting Disability is a production of AMI-audio. It's written and produced by me, Megan Gilmore. Technical producer is Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Special thanks to Ian Brown for being as profound on air as he is in writing and for sharing his hotel room with us, at least virtually. Thanks also to his wife, Johanna Schneller, and to their kids, Haley and Walker, for letting us into your lives. At the end of each show, I want to give special thanks to the people who personally inspired me for each topic. Personal thanks this time goes out to Bruce Gillespie of Wilfrid Laurier University, who introduced me to Ian's work all those years ago, and to my parents for decades of teaching me how to use my disability to build relationships with others. Thanks for listening, and we'll connect next time.
This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.